0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. BBC has been quick to change its schedules, responding to the needs of a pandemic-stricken Britain. That has hushed its many critics, for now. But the world's biggest broadcaster has some deeper structural issues that aren't going away. And there's a reason you probably haven't seen Bolivian wine on store shelves. It's mostly consumed domestically. Now some feuding families have joined an effort to boost the quality of the country's tart, tannic wines and attract a foreign fan base. But first... America's presidential election is just over six months away, but the democratic process has already been upended by the coronavirus. Fifteen states and one territory have either delayed primary elections or expanded options to vote by mail. This week, New York became the first state to cancel its June primaries altogether. Last week, presumed Democratic nominee Joe Biden aired his concerns that President Donald Trump would try to postpone November's elections.
1: I never even thought of changing the date of the election. Why would I do that? November 3rd. It's a good number.
0: But concerns have also been raised that states aren't prepared to hold a major poll in the midst of a pandemic. Today, Ohio is voting entirely by post for its party nominees. It remains to be seen whether this socially distant election will stand out as a success story or as a cautionary tale.
2: Ohio holds its presidential primaries today, both Democratic and Republican primaries. John Prado is our United States editor. The results are not terribly interesting because there are only two candidates. So Joe Biden will win the Democratic primary, Donald Trump will win the Republican primary. What is interesting, bizarrely, is the logistics of how the primary is being held. It's an all-male, all-postal primary, which Ohio has never done before. And so in some senses, it's a bit of a model for how a presidential election might go in November if people aren't able to get themselves to the polls. And so
0: how has the experiment gone so far?
2: Well, it's better than nothing, I suppose, and nothing maybe is the alternative. Ohio was meant to have its primary in March, it was postponed, and so an election is better than no election. There's been a huge increase in the number of people requesting postal votes, up by about 400%. I think just shy of 2 million people have requested postal ballots. But if you compare it with the presidential primaries of 2016, about 3 million Ohioans voted in them so there's a you know drop off of a third potentially in turnout here now some of that no doubt you can attribute to the fact that the election is not essentially uncompetitive but not all of it. And so I think the concern would be without states really thinking very hard about how they can encourage more people to vote, if we do have an all-postal election in November or a largely postal election in in November, turnout could likely be way, way down and a lot of people just um, sort of voluntarily disenfranchised in in a sense.
0: Well, what about online voting? Has that been considered as an alternative to, to postal voting?
2: Well, when states have considered changing their voting systems in the past, they've, I think, quite rightly been suspicious of online voting. It's hard to verify people's identities, people worry about hacking and and that sort of thing. There's something pleasingly lo-fi, low-tech and unhackable about a paper ballot that gets counted. But as to actual voting online, the consensus at the moment among people who look at this is that's not a terribly good idea.
0: And so is it the case then that that arranging a postal vote for Ohio now for perhaps the presidential election in November is is the simple way?
2: Well, it's not quite as simple as it sounds, Jason. Elections are a county affair in America, and lots of counties aren't particularly well resourced. and, And suddenly asking them to conduct elections in an entirely new way can be a bit of a stretch. So counties in Ohio have found it hard to get enough people trained up fast enough to process all the postal ballots that are coming in, that's been a problem. If you talk to county officials in states that hold extensive mail elections, places like Colorado or Washington state, they say that it really takes quite a long time to train up enough people to get familiar with the systems and the process. And they've been talking to their colleagues in other states over the past few weeks saying, you know, you really need to start training people up now in order to run an election in November
0: so you mentioned Ohio and Colorado as as examples, but you know, that leaves quite quite a few states who who may be even less prepared to do this. I mean, what are the chances that that the states are sufficiently ready for an election that might happen in
2: November? Well, that is the big question now, Jason. There's lots of cooperation among county officials, state officials, to try and get vote by mail going in time interestingly though on a federal level republicans have often been opposed to voting by mail if you look on a more local county level there's significant enthusiasm among republican county officials for, for voting by mail. But I suppose the urgency here, and you know, what Ohio will probably demonstrate is that states really need to get on it now. It's not a case that you can decide that the election you're going to hold next week is suddenly going to be an all postal affair. It takes months and months and months to get the systems up and to get the people trained.
0: There there have been suggestions in particular from President Donald Trump that postal voting increases voter fraud. What's what's your take on that?
2: I don't think that's borne out by the evidence. First of all, Donald Trump, Trump has been pretty interested or fixated on voter fraud since he won the election in, in 2016. If you remember, he was convinced that the only reason he hadn't won the popular vote was there'd been widespread voter fraud and he set up a commission on voter fraud headed by Chris Kobach to look into it and that commission then had to disband largely because there wasn't a whole load of evidence that there is voter fraud in America on on any scale. So when it comes to voting by mail, there have been some examples in the past. There was an election for the mayor in Miami back in 1998, which involves some fraudulent postal voting. But it's really very rare. So between 2000 and 2012, a period where billions of American votes would have been cast, there were 491 cases of absentee voting fraud. And during that same period, 497, so slightly more, Americans were killed by lightning. If you get more specific and look at particular states, Oregon is one of the states that's allowed everyone to vote by mail for a while. Oregon's officials, election officials reckon that they've sent out about 100 million postal ballots since the year 2000 and seen fewer than a dozen cases of electoral fraud. So it's not that it doesn't happen ever, it's that it's incredibly rare and When it's really your only option of running something like a functional election, the chances of increased voter fraud through mail elections are so small that it would be a mistake to get hung up on that because that would lead you to, I think, probably cancel the election entirely. Well, what about the assertion that
0: in some other way, fraud aside, that the postal voting advantages one party over another?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting one. This is something that President Trump, again, has pushed, went on the record saying that, you know, Republicans can never win if there's widespread postal voting. I don't think there's a whole load of evidence for that either. And actually, the most recent evidence, there was a paper by some political science researchers at Stanford, who found by studying what had happened in Oregon, actually, is Voting by mail rolled out by counties. They were able to compare counties that had it versus counties that didn't over a long period between 1996 and 2018, and they found that turnout increased a bit, which is good, but that a move to allowing everyone to vote by mail didn't advantage one party or, or the other. So you know, the best evidence we have is that it doesn't give either a party a significant advantage.
0: What do you think of the lessons that will be learned then from from the the Ohio election? this week.
2: Well, I suppose there are a couple of possibilities. It could go smoothly, in which case people, you know, might take heart that this is something that can be done on a huge scale in November, or it might rather like the Wisconsin election end up, you know, offering a lesson to the rest of the country in what not to do and how even a state that's spent quite a bit of time preparing for this can get it wrong. So instead of neither in way, it's hopefully a useful example. And, and it's good in many senses that not that much hinges on the outcome given that the nominees on both sides are decided already
0: john thank you very much for your time
2: thanks jason
3: traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse
0: There isn't a single facet of life almost anywhere on the planet that has not been affected, upended by the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Things are getting pretty ugly. Investors
3: are running away from assets they see as risky.
0: There is the risk that scepticism
3: and fear and mistrust kind of snowballs into something that becomes as big of a problem in the fight against COVID as COVID itself.
0: For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You have just heard Big Ben sounding in the clock
0: tower of the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. That sound is
1: heard daily by listeners all over the world.
0: For nearly a century, the British Broadcasting Corporation has been a source of news and entertainment for people around the world. Last year, the BBC announced a bigger global audience than ever before. On average, 426 million tuned in every week. But the corporation has been under threat, with Britain's Conservative Party government increasingly questioning its purpose and its funding. Every British household that watches live TV must pay an annual license fee of around £150, about $200. Those takings make up most of the BBC's budget. Critics have long challenged that model, but now, as the country battles COVID-19, the broadcaster seems to have been thrown a lifeline. I think the BBC feels that it's having
3: a fairly good pandemic.
0: Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. With everybody stuck
3: at home, they're seeing viewership of television go through the roof. 20 million people are being informed by BBC Six O'Clock News every week. Boris Johnson gave a broadcast which was watched by more people than any other recent broadcast in, in recent history. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. And the BBC is really sort of springing into action, doing all kinds of extra services for Britain. So, you know, its local radio stations are doing all kinds of stuff like live streaming a funeral to the home of a relative who was quarantined and couldn't make it. You've got people like Sir David Attenborough taking part in online lessons for children who are stuck at home.
1: Just because the world's on hold, it doesn't mean your child's education has to be.
3: You've got Mr. Motivator, who's a fitness instructor who's been brought back out of retirement aged 67.
2: Yes, come on now, everybody, we're having a special Friday workout.
3: To help people keep fit while they're stuck inside. Hope you're up and moving this morning, here we go. And I think people in the corporation feel that it's been an opportunity for them to really show what they can do and and what the
0: value is of having this publicly funded corporation. Well, a corporation that's publicly funded, at least in, in Britain,
3: Yeah, that's right. So if you're watching the BBC or listening to the BBC or reading the BBC outside the UK, then you're going to experience it much like you might experience uh, any other channel. You'll probably see advertisements on the website. Uh, You might watch BBC shows through services like Netflix. Um, But in the UK, it's a totally different experience. Uh, There are no ads on any BBC content. Uh, You get all the channels free of charge as long as you pay your licence fee, which is in effect a tax that households pay every year to fund the corporation.
0: And so all the things that the BBC has done in particular domestically during the the COVID crisis has gone some way to undermine the arguments that have been uh, against it that have been brewing before all this.
3: I think it has, yeah. And those arguments were getting pretty fierce. I mean, if you go back just to earlier this year, there was a a moment when an anonymous Downing Street source told the Sunday Times that they were planning to whack the BBC. Um, I mean, there's long-standing bad blood between the Conservative Party, which is in power at the moment, and the BBC, because Tory MPs have long thought of the BBC as being a a sort of left-leaning liberal institution. They've always felt irritated about that. And I think now that the Tories are in power with a, a very big majority, they see this, or some of them see this, as a chance to, to rein in the BBC a bit. And I think that the, the pandemic really will probably make people think twice about this, at least in the short term.
0: And, and the sense is that the BBC is is better placed in some way to to, to, to come to the rescue of the British people than than the, the commercial broadcasters?
3: Well, I think there's a feeling that having a, a public service broadcaster like this puts Britain at something of an advantage at a time like this when the public has to be well informed about what are literally matters of life or death. There are surveys that suggest that in the UK, people are somewhat less likely than they are in the States, for example, to believe rumours like um, you know the virus was made deliberately in a Chinese laboratory. I think the fact that the BBC is such a dominant source of news here means that people are sort of inoculated to some extent against fake news.
0: And so do you do you think that sort of outpouring of love for the BBC during during the pandemic will will it essentially right the ship?
3: I think it will temporarily, but I think the BBC faces bigger long-term problems which aren't going away. And really the central problem that it's facing is that its claim to universality is being undermined. Now, the BBC, because it's universally funded by this licence fee, it has to be universal in its output. It has to make something for everybody. But there's a worry that it's getting harder for it to do that. One reason is to do with bias. Now, with this kind of culture war that's come to Britain, uh, with Brexit being the main example... It's getting harder for it to bridge that gap. The kind of people who apply to work at the BBC, graduates in general, are overwhelmingly on the the kind of liberal or remain side of that argument. And so representing the whole country in that debate is harder than it was in the old left-right debate. The other way in which the BBC's universality is being undermined is that a lot of young people in particular just aren't watching anymore. People under 24 on average watch about an hour and 20 minutes of live TV a day Whereas people over 65 watch nearly six hours a day. And that difference is it makes it very, very difficult to defend the system in which
0: everybody pays the same. So what to do then? What can the BBC do, given the way that it's funded? How could it make itself a more fair proposition?
3: I think there are various options. I mean, one option would be to replace the license fee with a tax. So instead of everybody paying this flat rate of £157.50, nearly $200 per household per year, you could have a tax where poor people paid less than rich people. Um, the BBC is not that keen on that particular idea because it worries that it would damage its independence, because if the government were able to change this rate of taxation every year, then it would be able to threaten the BBC and it would become a kind of more heavily politicised outfit than it currently is. Another option might be for the BBC to take advertisements. Um, In Europe, a lot of public service broadcasters are ad-supported, but there's not much appetite for that. Again, the BBC is not particularly enthusiastic, and crucially, most of its commercial rivals are dead against the idea because as far as they're concerned, having the BBC compete with them to take ads would be devastating. And so one of the other options which... May gain traction in future years um, is a, a rather radical idea, which would see the BBC turn into a subscription model, uh, rather like Netflix.
0: So, so, those are the things that it could do. I mean, what's your feeling on what it it will do or, or can can do in the in the current climate? How how would that play out? Well, it
3: depends very much on who the next boss is, because the current Director General, who, who basically runs the place, Tony Hall, is leaving this summer, and the BBC is currently in the process of trying to find a successor um now we don't know who it's going to be but i think whoever gets the job uh is going to face this dilemma of whether they go for a kind of radical break with uh current practice and they look towards a future perhaps without the license fee um or whether they stick to the strategy that the bbc has pursued for decades which is to defend the license fee at all costs so really the future of the corporation is very much going to be in that person's hands
0: tom thank you very much for your time Thank you. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. For centuries, Bolivians have been growing grapes to make wine, a legacy from the country's status as a Spanish colony. But unlike its neighbors to the south, Chile and Argentina, landlocked Bolivia overwhelmingly sells its wine within its borders. That could be starting to change.
1: The modern industry, as we know it today, started in about the 1960s. And that's when this family, the Kohlbergs, decided to produce wine because one of their family members had a heart condition and the doctor told them that he needed to drink wine.
0: Mariana Palau writes about Latin America for The Economist and is based in Colombia.
1: Eventually, more families came into the industry. And for a long time, they were engaged in this fierce competition to sell cheap wine to this tiny, protected Bolivian market. That stopped, actually, in the 2010, when the Dutch government sent someone to help Bolivians break into the European market.
0: And so what kind of wines is it that, that we're talking about here?
1: Bolivians have actually focused on making red wines. Most of Olivia's vineyards are located in the region of Tarija, towards the southern end of the country, along with the border with Argentina and Chile. And they're among the highest in the world. They're at 2,000 meters above sea level. That's about 6,500 feet above sea level. And they have a great advantage because of this altitude. The first one is that there's these wild temperature swings that make the fruit more acidic. And the second one is that they have a lot of exposure to sun, to UVB rays, and that makes them increase in tannins. So their tannats and Malbecs and Cabernet Sauvignons, they're very fresh and they're spicy. This is what Case Van Castren says, the person who the Dutch government sent to Bolivia in 2010. He's one of 394 masters of wine. And he says the altitude actually gives them that advantage.
0: And so his his mission was essentially to 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 help Bolivian winemakers break into the European market. How has that gone?
1: Well, they've started to export certainly, but it's it's not been very simple. They they have a problem, and it's that they they can't really compete against other South American producers on price. The cost of planting a hectare of vines in Bolivia is about 20% more expensive than, say, for example, Argentina's Mendoza. That's Argentina's top winemaking region. The Bolivian vineyards have about one third of the yield, too. So what Case Van Casteren told them was that they needed to focus on making a more unique product. And that's when they started to make higher quality wines. They started to invest a lot in technology. They bought oak casks and they upgraded their irrigation systems. And it's actually worked because they have started to win prizes around the world.
0: But have they started to win the sales they were aiming for?
1: So they've they've started to export some wine, but they're still not breaking into the market. The issue is that Bolivian producers are too small to attract interest from distributors in Europe. So they'll definitely try and export more, but they're mostly hoping for the local market to come in and and grow. To demand more of of their wine. Bolivia has only around 11 million people and just consumes 14 million liters of wine a year. And then producers in Bolivia are also protected by import tariffs on foreign wine. They can be up to 40%. That, however, has encouraged contraband wine, especially from Argentina. A third of the wine consumed in Bolivia is actually smuggled in, in through the southern border. So you know, they, they, they don't have it easy uh, in the local market either.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm almost sold, but I have to ask, have, have you tried it? Is, is it? is it the unique and wonderful thing?
1: Yes, I have to say, I, I've tried a Campos de Solana wine, and I did think it was a unique wine. It somehow tastes different than other South American wines. You know, I, I'd say they have a shot.
0: Mariana, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jason.